And welcome to That's Life, the show where iced coffee is a food group. Good afternoon, folks, and thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 2 p.m. as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the home of the Nahum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side, though... The weather is not so beautiful today. I'm joined by my handy-dandy partner, Avram. What's up, Avrami? Hey, so I haven't really been to Little Italy in a long time. <laughs> There's a segue here, people, I promise. And, uh, yeah, so uh, this morning on my long walk, I was able to go through there, and I thought to myself, I don't remember ever walking through Little Italy before. Maybe I have. I just don't re- have no memory of it whatsoever, and I really didn't have time to stop and uh, smell the cannolis. But, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I got a chance to, you know. So walking in New York is okay. You find new things, etc. Okay. Well, the um, the difference for you and your little Italy, little Italy walking experience is that you're not nibbling as you go, which yeah, is I know. I the feel atypical like... New York experience. Right. I was like, Italy. oh, there's probably so much awesome food here. Right. It's like walking through Epcot. We need a little Italy in Israel so we can have that experience, but kosher. Well, I will tell you that um, uh, piggybacking on that comment, first of all, I want to thank you for all your help while we were in Israel last week. Pleasure. Um, there was a tremendous amount of programming that went on there, but on this side of the pond, there was a tremendous amount of programming that went on here as well, and we do thank you for everything that you did on our behalf and to make sure everything went smoothly. Now, Avrami, you also requested we bring back three things. Yes. What did you request? Share with everyone. All right. The first thing was obviously shawarma. Yep. Didn't bring it. All right. The second thing was sour Skittles because I recently found out Skittles are kosher. Uh huh. And the third thing was the mint Tic Tacs. Right. So the mint Tic Tacs you can get across the street at the uh, kosher food store. So uh-huh. I didn't do that, but I got you the Skittles. Ah, very nice. <laughs> I have what to eat on the bus ride home. Don't tell you. my kids. I'm not. Are you kidding me? I don't. Ah, <laughs> this is a good haul. People. Right. <laughs> Thank you. The truth of the matter is, is that we don't bring you any food. And every single time we have some kind of food event in here, you somehow or another are not in the studio. So I figured the least thing I could do, at least I could do is bring this back. And uh, yeah, Skittles are all the rage now. I got to be honest with you. I'm not, I don't understand it, but I'm not a candy person either. So I'm not the right person to ask. If you are a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. If you are a returning listener, thanks as always for making us part of your day. If Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, do what Leo Razamic does. And shout out to Leo Razamic and everyone at Shalavim for Women. Friend me on Facebook. Send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email, miriam at nachumsegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show. I will, however, please God, respond to you afterwards. Please follow us also on Twitter, nachumsegelnet, all one word. And follow me as well, please. Hashtag Miriam L. Wallach, all one word as well. Let's go to our favorite segment. And as we go to our favorite segment, I'm going to keep to my word. Last week, we did not have any fortune cookies at Shalvim. It's not um, it's not something that Israel doesn't provide. It's something I didn't bring with me. So I have two. We're going to open two. And a shout-out to Judy Horowitz, who uh, let me know that fortune cookies are on the way. She picked up some for me. She finally listened. Someone listened to my pleading. I've been begging my listeners. I've been begging you guys out there in Nahum Siegel country to do me a favor and shoot me some uh, fortune cookies. And Judy, listen, so I presume that my stash let next week will come all from Judy. So here's, oh, this is a nice one. For, is this counting for today or for last week? Avram, it's your decision. Um, I guess we should stick with the, um, you know, last week. First Sequence? one last week, yeah. Okay, right. so then this would be appropriate. Laughter shall fuel your spirit's engine. That is appropriate because, as many of you know, Nachum fell while we were in Israel and broke his elbow. And, and we're still laughing about right. it. Right. <laughs> and trust me, it's only funny now. Okay, so that's 
That's number one. Uh, yeah, I could have used that last week, i got to tell you. I could have used that. By the way, thank you also to that Chovesh from Hatzala who helped us um, when Nachum fell. I very much appreciate your being spot on and completely professional and putting us at ease with the exception of having x-ray vision and just telling us that the elbow was broken in the first place. Here's the second one. You ready? Oh, Lord. It is very possible that you will achieve greatness in your lifetime. Okay. There's no pressure on that. Thank you very much. I'm going to save this one for Nahum. Do I have any big meetings coming today that this would be a, a harbinger? Um, I got some emails pending, so let's see how that goes. Anyway, uh, let's take care of some business here. Today is national holidays. It is South, you ready for this one, Avram? It is Southern, Hev- Southern Hemisphere Hootie Hoo Day. <laughs> Just to be able to say Hootie Hoo on the air is fun. And it's also Be an Angel Day. Not holding by that one. No promises to anybody. Tomorrow, by the way, is Hug Your Boss Day. And I will tell you, we'll only be celebrating in spirit. Quick shout out, by the way, to all the campers and counselors from Kids of Courage. Thank you to Hananya Friedman, who let me know that this was the craziest and best year ever and that they had a blast. Call a vote to everyone involved in that wonderful, wonderful organization. Continued Hatzlacha in the coming year. Um, if you have not liked them on Facebook, you should. You definitely should. And by the way, speaking of Facebook, thanks to all of you who liked my Facebook post yesterday. I didn't realize it was going to be such a smash hit. But the truth of the matter is, is I should have expected that if I was going through it as a parent, so was everyone else. Frankly, since my kids have come home from sleepaway camp and they had a, another amazing, amazing summer at Camp Marasha, um, the, the, they, they still expect that they're in camp mode. And when we pick them up from the bus, my husband looks at them and says, let me remind you, you are back to real life. This is not camp. And he helps try to transition them slowly. But as I was discussing with Nahum yesterday, Rummy, the transition between camp and school is harder than school and camp. Because between school and camp, they're already ready to detox. Between camp and school, there is no detox. They haven't been studying. They've just been having fun, a scheduled fun every single day. So when my kids look at me and say, so what are we doing tonight? And I look at them, I'm like, I just got off the train. I'm exhausted. This, you see what we're doing right now, standing in the kitchen? This is what we're doing right now. So last night, I went to fill a couple of prescriptions with my eldest. And she looks at me and she goes, so what are we doing later? I said, later. It's like, it's 620. It's like 615. I just got off the train. What do you mean later? She goes, well, what are we doing tonight? I looked at her and I said, there is no night activity. And she looked at me like, you've got to be kidding me. And I said, this is what we're doing. So at that point, I just posted on Facebook something to the effect of, for all those kids who have just come home from summer camp, um, basically, welcome home. There is no night activity. Welcome back to real life. Thank you. And I did not realize what a smash hit was going to be because we are hovering around 70 likes (laughs) for this post. And in a million years, I didn't expect that. And at one point, I was, like, keeping tabs on it with my daughter And she says to me, why does everyone like this? And I said, because we're all in the same boat, because you're all expecting some kind of night activity. And we're all looking at each other saying, right, everyone's got to detox. Everyone's got to get back to reality. So I will be honest, that night activity last night at the Wallachs was uh, the Yankee game, which was everyone piling into my bed and watching the Yankee game. And that was actually a lot of fun until mommy fell asleep, which is always what happens. Crazy follows me everywhere. And this week, I would say, because of our trip to Israel, was no exception of rum. I will very quickly remind people that last year when I came back from birthright, I was given a hard time at passport control in Israel because there were a couple of kuftsaot. There were boxes in my suitcase, which um, people who were screening my bag had a problem with. 
and I was being, quote-unquote, investigated or questioned by a trainee at the time. And the boxes in my suitcase that were problematic, so to speak, were filled with rugelach. So I was all annoyed that 3 o'clock in the morning I was being given a hard time. What happens on this trip? Avram, you're not going to believe this. We are going through, our bags are checked. I'm with Nahum. I'm with ZK. Everything is fine. We're about to go through uh, the x-ray scanners, and all of a sudden everything halts at my passport. Why? Because there's a sticker on there that people don't like. It's an old sticker, but they, but one of the guys could not determine if it was old or was new, and it was a problematic sticker. Okay? What was wrong with the sticker? It was bigger than the normal ones, and it started with an unusual number. So they had to call somebody over. It was really like a 15, 20-minute delay, and, of course, everyone online behind me was annoyed. We couldn't figure out what was going on, and I kept on making jokes. Yeah, I know it's a bad passport picture, but nobody was thinking it was funny, and, frankly, it was getting annoying. I know. Don't make jokes with the Israeli passport control. I know. I know. I know. Anyway, they finally let me through. One person decides it's old. One person decides it's a fluke. But, of course, with Israeli security, there are no flukes, and everybody takes it seriously. What happens? Somebody explains to me when they when they look at the sticker that it is a sticker used for Israeli Arabs. And usually people with that sticker need to be pulled over on a different line and interrogated in a different way and yada, yada, yada. So I'm like, I don't understand what the problem is. Uh, clearly, I'm from Long Island. Listen to me, people. I'm from Long Island. I'm not anything else. Like, we couldn't figure out what was going on. And then all of a sudden, I relayed to this person at the airport the story of me with the rugelach in my bag. And what did he say? Oh, you were being interrogated by a trainee. He's like, you were the duck. They were duck hunting. They just wanted to put something out there to see if the trainee was going to catch it. So basically, I was the test balloon. They just wanted to make sure that this trainee that they were training was paying attention to the sticker, was looking through things appropriately. But what? No one told me to take the sticker off when we were done. <laughs> so as soon as we got through all this and whatever, I quickly scratched off. And moral of the story is we do not leave old stickers on our passports. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And that is a long, long, long introduction, a little bit more of a monologue than I am used to. But I am thrilled to introduce our first guest. It wouldn't be Rosh Hashanah without honey, and it wouldn't be Rosh Hashanah without honey cake. And all of that happens because of a guy like Danny Center from NJBees.com. I'm going to refer to him as the bee guy, and Danny joins us on the phone right now. Hello, Danny. Good morning. How are you? Thank God well. Good. Do you mind if I call you the bee guy? Uh, absolutely not. There actually, <laughs> I think there is someone who has officially got that title, but for today, that's fine. How do you officially get the title as the bee guy? Um, I think he just, he. I think that's what he calls himself <laughs> on the internet, and he's got some sort of company. I'm not certain. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. Anyway, njbees.com is uh, where you can find Danny. And I love, by the way, that on the, on the homepage, it says, Welcome to the New Jersey Bee Center. S-E-N-T-E-R, a play on words with your last name. So I thought that that was very cute. Thank you. Danny, explain to everybody, um, that first of all, how how bees, I know it's going to sound ridiculous, but I went through all the pictures last night, and frankly, I was a little afraid of all these bees, even though they were just pictures. Um, <laughs> there's something very daunting about all these pictures. But how do bees actually make honey? I have no idea. Okay, um, that's an excellent question. Um, a Bees collect a number of things for their hive, and basically honeybees work the entire spring and summer preparing for winter and to survive the winter. They survive the winter as a group. We refer to them as a mega-organism. There's a queen and a few thousand bees that survive the winter, and to do that they need lots and lots of honey. Honey is basically bee food. Mm -hmm. the bees eat honey. They eat 
pollen, but for the most part, for our conversation, we're talking about the honey. Honey is made by bees going out to the field and collecting nectar. Bees will visit thousands upon thousands of flowers on a daily basis, collect the nectar, bring the nectar back to the hive. Now, the nectar is a complex carbohydrate. Okay. It's a disaccharide. And that is something that was not very stable. The bees convert it into a, using enzymes into a monosaccharide, which is a simple sugar. They then dry that nectar, reduce the moisture, and it becomes a very, very stable product. They're doing that so it will survive the winter. It won't crystallize. It won't turn. Well, it mm. will crystallize eventually, but it won't turn. It won't sour. Bacteria can't grow in it. Um, the bees in our area, in the Jersey area, need about 80 pounds of honey to survive the winter. So the wow. first 80 pounds of honey the bees make, we have to leave in the hive because we want the hive to survive from year to year. Right. Anything in excess of that is the beekeeper's honey, which we then extract, filter, and bottle. So you're just as concerned with the sustainability of honey, which I know is an issue now because there's there there is a quote unquote drought of bees. Am I am right? I... They're, they, they, they're they're referring to it as colony collapse disorder. They haven't determined exactly the cause. There are a number of suspicions. One of them being pesticides. Hmm. Another one being a loss of environment. The third there are a number of pests which have been introduced by the movement of produce and actually bee products from one environment to the other. Um, the end result is feral hives and beekeeper. Feral hives are hives in the wild, and beekeepers kept colonies have, are are dying in record numbers. Wow, uh, which is obviously a concern, and it's a concern beyond honey because a big portion of the food we eat is pollinated by bees. Right, and if we if our bees disappear, those fruits and vegetables will not be available to us. It's the overlapping of the ecosystems. It's everything you learn about in, like, fifth grade science right, or right. from the bee movie with Jerry Seinfeld coming to life. Yeah, okay. I understand. <laughs> well, at least, you know, that's, unfortunately for you, that's my source. That's a lot of reference. There are a lot of mistakes. <laughs> there are a lot of mistakes in the movie. Really? But Oh, absolutely. For, as, as a first rule, there are no male workers in the hive. So the drones, which are the male bees, don't do any work. So Jerry really wouldn't have had a, a role in a real bee movie. Really? Yeah. There are only, this is fascinating, there are only female workers in the hive? Right. So the, the hive has three different types of bees in the hive. Okay. There's obviously the queen. Everyone's heard about the queen. There's generally only one queen in a hive. Then there's a, As well it should be. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um <laughs> The, in, in addition, there are drones. Drones are the male bees. Now, male bees, interestingly enough, do not sting, but they also do no work. All they do, their job is to impregnate a queen, not the queen inside the hive, but they, their job is to impregnate a queen, which most drones never get to do in their lifetime. And other than that, they just consume honey. And they may add a little warmth to the hive in colder weather. However, they actually get kicked out. Since they, they serve no purpose, and the winters are tough, and we've got a limited amount of honey for the bees to eat and survive the winter. As we get into colder weather, like this time of the year, the drones actually get pushed out of the hive. Um, the remaining bees, and a good, healthy hive this time of the year can have about sixty to 70,000 bees in them. The remaining bees are all worker bees. They have many, many jobs inside the hive, and their coordination is really an amazing part of nature. Um, but the, all those bees are all female. 
They do all the work in the wow. hospital. Wow. I mean, there are so many one-liners I could throw out here, but I'm going I'm yeah, to resist you the not, temptation. You would not be the first. Yeah, I'm sure not. And I like to be original. I'm sure you uh, can imagine. Danny, let me ask you a question. Sure. As a person who runs away from bees, what? It, where is this fearlessness that, that you have? Where does it come from that allows you... And I've seen these pictures. I have okay. seen these pictures on your page. And, again, I encourage people to go to njbees.com because, frankly, you need to see it to believe it. But, Danny, where does this fearlessness come from? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I, would, I would definitely not describe myself as fearless. If I was fearless, I'd probably go visit the bees without any protective equip of clothing on. No, then you'd be crazy. Oh, there's fearless, okay. and then there's It's okay. like those people in the National Geographic magazines. Right, I accept that. Yeah. I accept that correction. <laughs> but um, I am fascinated by things most people don't do. And beekeeping, although it's becoming much more popular, was the type of thing when I first saw it, I went to visit a friend of mine on a farm, and he was keeping bees, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, nobody keeps bees. This is something I should look into. So I was just fascinated by it initially just because of the fact that it's the type of thing the average person does not do. Right. Um, But the more I read and the more I learned about them, I said, these are amazing creatures. They are really docile. I do get stung once or twice a season. But they, in general, when I open up a hive, it's actually, believe it or not, a very calming and relaxing experience. The bees continue doing what they're doing for the most part. They really don't bother with you. Um, they've got lots and lots of work to do. So even with you disturbing them, most of the bees just go about their merry way. So when do bees sting? And I don't mean to sound silly, but if you're interacting with these bees on a constant basis and you're telling me that they go about their business, then, then when do bees actually Okay, so first of all, bees get a very bad rap because of their relatives, (laughs) wasps, hornets, and other biting and stinging insects. Okay, so we're talking about differentiation between honeybees and their cousins. Yeah, and also other bees. Bumblebees are also very docile. Bees in general, true bees, will generally not bother with people. And there's a reason why. If a bee stings someone, that's the end of their life. They Mm. have a barbed stinger. And they do not have any reason to sting you other than the defense of their hive. If they believe that the hive, the queen, or their honey stores are in jeopardy, they will defend the hive at the cost of their own life. But other than that, in my house in upstate New York, I have a beautiful wild garden outside in front of the door. And it's actually populated by lots of honeybees, because I keep bees, and also a load of bumblebees, and I have regular visitors in my house. No one has ever been stung because the bees wow. are away from the hive. They don't feel threatened by us. The kids will knock a ball into there. The kids will go get the ball, and the bees just move out of the way. Bees are really not at all interested in stinging. Now, yellow jackets and hornets right. are a horse of a different color. Yeah. How do you keep those bees away from what you're doing? Isn't there like a natural kind of gravitational? No, the, the bees do that themselves. The hive, inside the hive, the bees have various jobs. One of the groups of what we call house bees, those bees actually, when they start their life, summer bees live for six weeks. The first few weeks of their life, they are house bees. Their job is basically inside the hive. The last few weeks of their life is outside the hive. They become foraging bees. So one of the groups of bees doing housework are guard bees. Their job is to make sure that there are no invaders. And invaders could be ants. They could be something as small as ants. They could be something as big as bears and everywhere in between. So if, for example, like you said, if a wasp or a yellow jacket would try to make entry into one of my hives, 
the guard bees would defend the hive. And again, they defend the hive at the cost of their own life. So, so when, when I think about the fact that this is really a kingdom, there is an order, there is, um, there's a pecking order, everyone has a job, and they are pretty self-sufficient. I'm not, this, is, this is like real life. This is exactly what's happening there. A hundred percent. That is incredible. Danny Center from NJBees.com. He helps us make sure that we have a sweet new year. Now, Danny, you and I joked around a little bit texting last night. I texted you that I love creamed honey. And I have tried to explain to people that creamed honey is not dairy. It is not a product of mixing butter with honey. I don't know what it is a product of, but for some reason or another, it is possibly the most delicious thing I've ever tasted. Can you explain to everyone what the difference is between regular honey and creamed honey and sure. how you make creamed honey? Sure, sure, sure. Um, creamed honey, let's first describe what it is. Creamed honey basically is honey that has the consistency, spreadable consistency. It is a very smooth and wonderful product. It's got great mouthfeel. And ingredient-wise, unless it's flavored, is just pure honey. So the obvious question is, bees don't make creamed honey, so right. how do you get creamed honey? So we first have to look at honey. I mentioned to you that honey is a very stable product. However, those sugars, the sugars inside honey, will copy crystallization. So if I take a beautiful jar of liquid honey and I take a spoonful of crystallized honey, and that's honey that's like gritty and it's basically the sugars have solidified, mm-hmm. and I put a spoon of that into the liquid honey, and I leave it alone for a week or two, I'll actually end up with a big lump of crystallized honey. Oh. And it's gritty. It's, it's not a big deal. And this, if this happens, if you have in your cupboard crystallized honey, don't throw it in the garbage. Just put it in some warm water. The crystals will dissolve, and you'll have liquid honey. It'll be exactly like it was before. What you also can do is you can take a small amount of that crystallized honey, pulverize it, and it's a lot of work initially, but if you pulverize that honey, it will become you breaking down the crystals, and now you've got a very fine crystallization, and that will give the texture of a creamed product. But then what's interesting is you could take that honey, we refer to it as seed honey, which is, again, just regular honey that has been crystallized and then pulverized, Add that to your liquid honey, and now the honey will copy that texture. So what I do is I take honey that I've harvested, liquid liquid honey. Mm-hmm. I add some seed honey, which is just that pulverized, crystallized honey, and the end result of the product within it takes about two weeks is a wonderfully smooth, spreadable honey. It takes two weeks for it to copy the crystallization. Yes. You can increase the product by adding the amount, uh, by increasing the amount of seed honey that you use and make it go faster. But it's about, I set it up, it takes me, it takes about two weeks for my honey to set. Wow. I didn't realize it takes that long. I mean, I can't tell you that I actually thought about how long it takes to get from point A to point B, but that is, considering how long, how long does it take, by the way, bees to make a pound of honey? I mean, we talked about that at the beginning. So So that's, um, that depends on the season and the nectar flow. They will visit over a million flowers to make much far less than a, uh, a pound of honey. Um, but it depends also on the honey flow. Right now, the bees are consuming more honey than they're making, especially in Teaneck, but even in upstate New York. I have two apiaries, one in Teaneck and one in upstate New York, and their consumption is more than they're producing. So I have a negative gain right now. Uh. 
in the heart of the nectar flow, late spring, they could be bringing in lots and lots and lots of honey on a daily basis in excess of a pound. Um, they could really be. The nectar flow is really good when we get stuff like um, black locust, where there's abundance of uh, blossoms in Teaneck. They're filling up my honey, honey stores at record rate. Wow. And that's how and that's how the different honeys get their flavors is based upon the flowers. Which Correct, the nectar. All the honey that I collect is I call wildflower honey. Okay. But based on the season, the honey can have very, very different characteristics. And it's the characteristics are solely depend, dependent on the types of flowers that they got the nectar from. Okay. And just like one or two more questions, Danny, because mm-hmm. I know that you're on a tight timetable and we have a full day of programming here. Tell me also, what is, what's it called, like, it's a very, very dark, dark honey, like a black kind of... Well, there are a number of them. Pine honey, which I don't really carry any, but pine honey is a very dark... There are a number of honeys which are very, very dark. Like a buckwheat? Is there one... Buckwheat is also a very dark honey, correct? What's interesting is years ago, anything other than a light honey was considered not a quality product and was used solely for cooking. It was only later on when people got more sophisticated and they realized there's wonderful tastes and flavor differentiations between the different, the various um, colors, and by that matter, it's the types of flowers, that they realized that there are wonderful other avenues of harvesting. Originally, it was just people would look for only clover honey. Now they realize that there's a wealth of different types of uh, honeys out there. And can you make any of those honeys into creamed honey, or it just... Yes, but I generally use a light honey because the creamed honey that's made with a darker honey just has the color-wise right. is not as appealing. You want in a creamed honey, you want that whitish cream that almost looks like butter. Right, and I was about to say that the idea of me spreading a buckwheat creamed honey on a piece of challah is like spreading Marmite. And I yeah. I apologize to all our Australian listeners, but that's not something that would do it for me is this black. Right. Spread. It doesn't look like chocolate. It looks like black. Well, what's interesting is I make, my, I have rules with my, when I make a number of flavors of creamed honey, and my rule is it's got to be only one ingredient. I'll never add more than one ingredient other than the honey. So I make a cocoa, which is, looks like chocolate, as you said. Cool. I make a vanilla bean, which is wonderful, tastes like marshmallows. I make a cinnamon, which tastes like a cinnamon. You put it on bread, it makes your challah taste like a cinnamon roll. Wow. And I lastly make a coffee with ground coffee beans. And you, But you don't sell those online, do you? I I sell them at the farmer's market. I have a farmer's market in Teaneck. If people contact me, I certainly will send them uh, those varieties. The problem is I can't leave it on the website because I run out. I oh. think it takes two weeks to make it. And what I do is I always make, I start by just blending the creamed honey. So I'll always make make um, plain. So plain will always be available. Got but it. like as an example, right now I don't have any cocoa. Oh, I because I bought it. three jars of plain last night. But if I knew there was cinnamon out there, I would have definitely gotten me one of jar of cinnamon. Okay. Well, that's good to know, though. Anyway, anybody who's interested, and I hope you are all interested, njbs.com. That's how you reach Danny Center. Or you can go to the farmer's market in Teaneck. Danny, where is that? That is right behind Cedar Lane. We're there on Thursdays from around, well, they started around 11 o'clock to 6. Wow. Okay, fantastic. So after the show is over, I encourage everyone to go pick up your honey. Or, again, you can order it online, njbees.com. Danny, thank you so much for joining me. Continued Hatzlacha, and have a happy thank new you. year. You too. Bye. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and I'm looking forward to my next guest.
A returning guest here at That's Life, Mr. Joseph Gittler, chairman and founder of Leket Israel, joins me on the phone. Hello, Joseph. Hello, good morning, or good <laughs> afternoon, or whatever it is. Here it's afternoon, not much I can tell you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good to hear your voice. Mary. Oh, pleasure to have you on. By the way, congratulations. You were named to the Algemeiner Journal's 100 Most Influential Jews, am I right? I've heard rumors. I've seen copies. I'm a little dumbfounded, but honored at the same time. What, what about that as dumbfounding? You you helped found, or you had this brainchild. How many years ago now? We're in our. We're just starting our tenth year. Wow. Okay. So happy anniversary, first of all. Thank it seems you. like seems like a lot of ten year anniversaries. Last week we helped Nefesh Benefesh celebrate its tenth anniversary. We helped uh, Shalvin for Women starting its 10th year, and now you guys also. I didn't realize 10 years ago was so fortuitous, but yeah, well. <laughs> it seems like a lot of great things started 10 years ago. So I don't know why an honor like that should take you by surprise, except for the fact that you're just a humble kind of guy. I'll but, compare it, that's kind of you, but I'll compare it to how I often do in Leket. We work with 200 different charities. We serve 200 charities, the food that we're able to collect. Unfortunately, we could drop all 200 of those and pick up 200 other well-deserving oh. candidates. I feel the same way. It was great to be on the list. Deserved, certainly in some ways, but that list could have been dropped completely, and we could have found 100 equally deserving candidates. Leket Israel is one of those organizations that wishes it didn't have to exist. Am I right? Uh, in two cents, I would say. Though on the one hand, I wish we had have been able to convince the public at large and the corporate world, that there are better ways to produce food so that there's less waste in the world. And on the second front, uh, that there be no needy. And unfortunately, while we're a successful organization, we haven't been able to succeed on either of those fronts yet. Why is that? Well, you know, food, as much as we've read over the past few years about food prices rising in many countries in the world, in the Western world, whether it be Israel, the U.S., Canada, England, the slight rises in food prices have minor impact on most of the population. So food companies, just like in clothing or in all the other uh, items which have become more and more mass-produced over the years, mass production is cheap, and food is still cheap as a relative, bat, as a relative percentage of one's uh, expenses. So food producers continue to produce food in great volumes, and even if they're off by half a percent, one percent, two percent, to them it's small. To the poor, though, that is a staggering right. amount of food, and that's why we have to keep on doing what we do. Right. Like at Israel, by the way, just to remind everyone, is Israel's national food bank. They serve the country's national food bank. They're the largest food rescue network, and they work to alleviate the problems of, na- of, na- of nutritional insecurity amongst the growing numbers of Israel poor. I will tell you that as part of our... Uh, programming last week from Israel, where we were um, honored and uh, to be able to be part of a number of different stakot, including Ormeiru Bracha, which is a soup kitchen in Yerushalayim. We were astounded by the number, uh, by, by the the depths of 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 poor uh, of families in Israel. How there's um, there's no shortage of crazy stories and of heartbreaking stories and of Children going, uh, you know, being on the street wearing the exact you know, two right shoes. There was a story told last week about a little girl who attended a program who had two right shoes. She didn't have one right and one left. And that wasn't because she got dressed funny in the morning. 
it's because it's all she had. And yep. it really took us, um, I don't want to say by surprise, but it's always important to have that slap in the face and say, not only should you really appreciate everything you go, well, you have when you go home and there's food in your fridge, but don't forget that these stories are not one in a million. No, I think, unfortunately, today Israel is is another perfect example of a successful Western country, which has created, like you know, the United States, certainly a class of super-haves, you know, somewhat haves, and a very large class today, unfortunately, of have-nots, right. some who work and earn very meager incomes and struggle to support their families, and others, which is a unique issue to Israel. You know, we have a whole class of people today who aren't working, and that causes uh, a really difficult uh, situation. Couple that together with the percentage of our budget, which we need to spend on defense, and Israel becomes a very tricky, very difficult country to get out of its poverty situation. And that's why we have so many partners in Leket and other charities uh, throughout the world helping us uh, to try to get through this, because the Israeli government, while supportive of what we do and hopefully even financially supportive in the future, has such burdens on it that other countries just don't have. And that's something I try to explain to people very often. It also, one of the things I like the most about Leket is that a dollar goes a long way. And I don't mean that to be funny because, um, you know, it's part of the website that for every dollar donated, Leket can provide 10 pounds of fresh produce that's been salvaged across Israel. Now, how is that? Because there are so many places where a dollar gets you nothing, and I don't just mean I don't just mean in the non-for-profit world, but it just cost me two dollars and fifty cents to get a really large iced coffee at Seven Eleven. So how is it possible that my my dollar actually buys something in Israel where it doesn't buy something right here? Okay, so that's that's a great question. Well, the structure of Leket is really what leads to that. While Leket has many expenses in running our operation. The beauty of what we do is our key component, which is the food that we collect and redistribute, we receive for free. Okay, so right. all the fruits and vegetables, all the cooked meals, which is astounding numbers of cooked meals, uh, nearly 100,000 cooked meals during the month of July. It's absolutely staggering amounts of food. We're going to finish this year, if our pace continues, with over 12,000 tons, which will be 25 million pounds. Wow of fruits and vegetables, which is an increase from last year of about 33%. So while we have gas and we have salaries and we have insurance, we have trucks and we have warehousing and fundraising and all the things that people uh, that are part of any uh, effective charity, the value of the food pales in comparison. So to give a quick example, you know, we will get a donation of dairy products. We had yesterday a donation of 3,300 cottage cheese packages, which, of course, in Israel is a staple food. Right. Nothing wrong with them, just they're expiring in a couple of days, and no one's willing to buy them anymore. The value of that, and I'm not that good at math, but the retail value of that is about six shekel per package. So six shekel times 3,300, uh, what is that, 20,000 shekels. It's a okay. lot of, it's a lot it of, it's a lot of us, this, yeah. It's a lot, yeah, it might cost us 1,500, 2,000 shekels to pick that up. That's great leverage, and that's the kind of leverage that every charity would like to get, but we're in the unique position because of our structure and what we do, we're actually able to achieve that. Tell us about some of your partners that you work with, because you do make it clear that there are, um, that your success and Leket's success is based upon also the success or the interdependence of your partners. So Leket is, it's important to know Leket does not do any direct feeding of the needy. Everything runs through a network today of about 200 different 
feeding charities, and that really runs the gamut. Uh, all the unfortunate programs that we hear about, from battered women's shelters mm. to clubs for the elderly, including a lot of Holocaust survivors today, right. after-school clubs for kids, homeless shelters, soup kitchens, Tomche Shabbos-type programs where food is being delivered for Shabbat. It's, it runs the gamut. It's it geographically diverse throughout the country and also ethnically diverse, working with all population groups in Israel. And uh, it's a real Kiddush Hashem, the type of work that we're doing, you know, feeding all of Israel's poor. It's never enough, unfortunately, and that's part of right. why we're always looking to grow. Now, let me ask you two questions. First of all, something I noticed about the website, which you can tell me it's been there for a while. I just wasn't paying attention. But you now have a French site. Yeah, well, there are a lot of French Jews out there. There are a lot of French Jews out there, and I noticed last week in Israel when we were in Yerushalayim that at one point I really felt like I was sitting in the UN. And why? Yeah. And why is that? Because I'm busy having lunch, and there are a number of conversations in French happening around me. I'm speaking Hebrew, somebody else is speaking English, but I didn't remember there being such a a heavy French presence. And then my uncle explained to me that there are obviously a lot of French who come to vacation in Israel over the summer, but also the circumstances in, in, in France for Jews is less than ideal, and people are making Aliyah, and there's a uh, there's a wave of immigrants coming now from France. So is that is that part of the, the website speaking to that change in the culture in Israel? Well, we've we noticed, I mean, it's important to us to be able to speak to all all people who want to hear about the work of Leket. Right. Well, in but, you the know, United States... From a technical States... and financial point of view, it takes time to engage them in different languages. So obviously we started in Hebrew and English. Then we had small parts of our site in some other languages. French, specifically, we've actually hired a, a former uh, a woman from Paris who moved to Israel, and her goal is marketing and fundraising to French-speaking Jews in no Israel. No way. Yeah. And, Fran- <laughs> and to go to France. And to go to France. You know, they're still... Despite, you know, what your uncle said, it's still a trickle. Okay, so maybe it's a thousand people a year, fifteen hundred people a year. There's still about six hundred thousand right. Jews living in France. That's a big audience that expects its information in French and we see it. If I gave you, you know, we just started our Rosh Hashanah campaign. So right. thankfully donations are starting to come in online and I see those come into my email. And we just you won't see any or next to any that aren't from English or Hebrew speaking clientele, because they expect, if you're a Spanish speaker, you expect to get the email in Spanish, you expect to have the interface in Spanish, right. and to be able to support like it in Spanish. So we're starting with French, because that's just the big, you know, after English and Hebrew, you know, that's the next big language. And um, it's, it's coming along. This summer we had a couple thousand French volunteers, whether they live in Israel or from overseas which is nice to see. Right. I don't know what they're talking about, but it's still nice to see them. Well, I don't know if the I don't know if my uncle meant that there was like an influx of Jews from Paris like it was, you know, Operation Magic Carpet or Operation Eiffel Tower or something. But right. but right, there was there's definitely there's definitely a change and even when we were um, broadcasting last week from Orme Bracha, there was a, a French family who was there for the summer and they were volunteering and it just like again, it spoke to me, but what was funny to me is something you had just mentioned that if a website in the United States was looking for a second language to start translating its site into, it would be Spanish. But of so Right. Yeah. So the fact that you have this French site now speaks to that. Now, the other thing I want to make sure that people know is that there are a number of programs over Sukkot, which people can become involved in if you are going to, if you are lucky enough to be spending Sukkot in Israel, which is a phenomenal experience. There are things you can take part in, and the Rosh Hashanah campaign has started. So let's hear about those. Okay. So first off, with regards to Cholomo we have a 
we have picking throughout the year on every, you know, on every day, Sunday through uh, Thursday, sometimes Fridays as well. During the holiday period, what we do is we try to give our staff a little break. Mm -hmm. So we have a one-day major picking event on Sunday, September 22nd, which is during Cholamoed. And we have two sites, one in Rehovot and one in Nahalal, which is up a little bit north on the way to Tavaria near Afula, Mm -hmm. where we're going to have picking all day there on those Sundays. And if anyone wants more information on that, you can get it on our website, or you can get it, and I'll give you an email address, info, I-N-F-O, at leket.org, L-E-K-E-T dot O-R-G. We had about 2,500 people uh, during Cholomoy, during the intermediate days of Cholomoy Pesach. I'd love to see an even bigger number than that this year. Bring your hats, bring your water, bring your sunglasses. It (laughs) will be hot. It's an early, you know, Jackie Mason used to always say the holidays never come on time, but this year really is early. Right. And um, so I recommend people do come out, you know, do be prepared for some heat. But the fact is we need your help picking. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, our Rosh Hashanah campaign has launched. It launched on the 21st of August, which is actually my brother Mark's birthday, just in case he's listening. So happy birthday (laughs) to him. And... This campaign is really simple, and I'm going to put a little twist on it now after a meeting I had today with our CEO. What we are trying to do is to feed 250,000 people over the Chagim period. Wow. It cost us, for every dollar, okay, we can bring out 10 pounds of food. So if we can, for example, raise $100,000 in this, okay, mm-hmm. then we can do a million pounds worth of food. Wow. Okay? So that's the way I hope people who are listening and thinking and want to be supportive of this can can uh, can be helpful. What we will use that help for, and this is sort of a interesting thing for people to think of, because when you give to many feeding charities, you're giving them money essentially to buy food. Leket today has a problem. It's what you call a problem of of a charity that has been too successful in finding sources of food. Oh. And so what's happened is, in a meeting today with our CEO, I found out that we have more than blown through our budget this year for outsourced trucking, because what happens is sometimes we have such copious amounts of fruits and vegetables that are, able, that are there for our taking that our own 10 refrigerated trucks can't do it. So we hire, at the cost generally of about 2,000 shekels a day per truck, outsourced trucks. It's a good use of money. Right. Okay? The thing is, we have, I think we budgeted this year for about 500 trucks like that, truckloads, and we 800, and we're only in August. Oh, my word. So what I would say to people listening is that what I'd like to do is use, you know, any support that comes in for this campaign over the Chagim to use that to just ensure that Leket has the trucking power it needs to get through the next few months. Because every time we send one of those trucks out, it costs us 2,000 shekel, but we'll usually bring in, depending on the crop, five to 10,000 shekels worth of fruits and vegetables. And, of course, that's the kind of stuff that agencies don't spend money on. Right. And to introduce that to the poor is vital. Wow. Well, I, I wish you'd continued Hatzalcha in the year to come and in many years to come. And while I appreciate the fact that, yes, you would prefer to be out of business and that meant that everyone had square meals three times a day, I, I commend you on all your good work. And as long as we need you, I hope you stay strong. Thank you very much, Miriam. Let me wish everyone a Chag Kasher V'Sameach, Shana Tova. It should be a good, happy, healthy, and safe year.
for the Jewish people. Amen. Thank you for your time. Amen. You should go to leket.org again if you have questions about programs over Cholamoid or if you want to donate, go to leket.org, info at leket.org for any questions. But again, if you go on their website, you see that they have a very clear goal. They want 250,000 people fed, and so far there's about 17,000 and change in terms of people fed. We have a lot of work to do, people. So whether yeah. you're a French speaker, an English speaker, or a Hebrew speaker, please get on leket.org and give what you can. Joseph, thank you very much. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Thanks, Miriam. Pleasure. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nahum Siegel Network, and we are ready for our third and final guest. If you go to the website, Srili. The number four minim, S-R-U-L-I-4-M-I-N-I-M dot homestead dot com. You may be surprised just to see a very straightforward Arba minim order form. Except the story behind this website is the person behind the business that is Arba minim, that is truly for minim dot homestead dot com, is Shruli Wiener, who's joining me on the phone right now from Jerusalem. Hello, Shruli. Hi. How are you? Yeah, See, I'm sure that my listeners wonder what's going on here because you are possibly the youngest entrepreneur I've ever had on the air. Thank you. How old are you? I am uh, almost 14. You are almost 14, and yet you have a business selling Arba Minim in Jerusalem. Yes. And when did that start? Around seven years ago. <laughs> so for those of you doing quick math at home, basically Strolli has been started, has started a business, and and has been selling Arba Minim since he's about, you know, seven. Yes. Am I right? Yeah. Okay, you know, a lot of kids are playing soccer when they're seven, Sroli. So explain to me how in the world you started selling the Arba Minim when you were in first or second grade. So I was walking around next to Stieblach, um, the market in uh, Katamon, and my cousin, which is a big dealer in uh, Arba Minim, came over to me and asked me if I want to be a salesman. And I said, sure. And uh, who would say no to this cute face? <laughs> I would agree because I will tell you that the, that the picture or the cartoonish kind of picture of you on your website does not do you justice. Knowing you, um, knowing you face to face, I would say that, that it's a much cuter picture in, uh, in real life. Tell me how people are surprised when they find out you're 13? Um, pretty surprised, yeah. <laughs> Does somebody, do people give you a hard time? Do they try and take advantage of you? No, 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 no. No, not at all? But, Nobody's tried to handle with you to get a better price because you're just a kid? No, of course uh, people try, but, um, uh, you know, I hold down uh, my price. <laughs> Tell me what are the different packages that you offer, because I noticed on the site that it says, back by popular demand is the Super Mahudar. Yes, so we have four different kinds. It's, uh, the, the number one is a kosher set, you know, a basic one. Mm-hmm. No, uh, the second one is a modar. The third one is a modar, I mean a modar. And the pack, um, back from uh, pop, uh, popular demand is um, the um, insane modar. <laughs> the insane modar. Tell me what makes a, a set of Arba Minim insanely mehudar? Uh, you know, uh, um, the rabbis, when they check it, uh, it's uh, the, the, the thing. That, I got it. I got it. So what is included, just so that people understand, everything everything comes included. You have your lulav, you have your etrog, you have your arbaminim, you, everything's there. Everything's there. That's fantastic. And how do people get their sets from you? Let's say somebody is coming from New York and they're lucky enough to spend Sukkot in Israel. 
How do they get their set from you if they're just a tourist? I deliver to hotels and houses in Jerusalem or next to Jerusalem. You have your own business and your own delivery system. Yeah. Who helped you with that? Uh, My parents a little and, uh, you know, some uh, good friends. (laughs) That's fantastic. Srili, when you started this, it was just a game or were you already, like, making a commission even at the age of seven? At the age of seven, I was making a commission, and as uh, the years went up, I, uh, you know, I uh, made some more. There are, are people, are your parents surprised by your success? I mean, it's one thing to do it just one year, but it's another thing to be a reoccurring business. Um, yeah, they're, you know, pretty surprised, they're pretty proud of me, so, yeah. And what are you doing with all your, uh, all of your commissions, so to speak? I save them up sometimes or I invest sometimes, and yeah. <laughs> Tell me about, you're hysterical. Tell me about some of your investments. Again, we have on Srilly Wiener. He's at Srilly, the number four meanim at dot homestead.com. You can also Google it, Srilly, the number four meanim. It is the first thing that pops up is Srilly's website. Srilly, tell us about some of the investments you've already made with your commissions off of the uh, Arba Minim site. I, this, this past year, I, uh, I, uh, bought a stock. Good. You bought stock. That's great. What else? Uh, some electronics, um, bikes. <laughs> so really, do you use those bikes for deliveries? Sometimes, yeah. What do you do when, uh, when Sukkot is over? I mean, do your investments or your, your businesses stop and they, they just, is it just for the season or you do other things the rest of the year? I do other things the rest of the, year, of the year, you know, with my friends sometimes we sell some stuff. Well, tell me things that you're, tell me things that you and your friends sell because I imagine that, um, if you're finding that, um, you're successful just for the Yom Tovim that you've also, please God, found success in other things. Yeah, you know, I kind of some, sometimes buy some stuff for cheap and sell them, you know, for a little more and, you know, you make, uh, you make some stuff, some money. Tell me about, also, you have um, Etrog liqueur, am I right? Yep, I make, me and my dad. <laughs> Is that for sale as well? No, that's, uh, as we say, for personal use. <laughs> that is for personal use. That's really, really cute. So, Srilly, number four, meanim.homestead.com. Srilly, um, when you, w- tell me about the, um, the tell me about, I, I remember we, you and I spoke one time, that you felt that somebody was was trying to take advantage uh, of your age. And I know that you say that sometimes people handle with you, and it's, of course, our nature as Jews to handle and try to get the best price. Tell me how you stand your ground without being chutzpahdik, without being disrespectful. You know, everyone, whoever comes next um, to my stand or uh, whatever or calls me up is a customer. So, you you know, try to be as nice and all, you know, um, agreeing with him about everything, and then you uh, you see what, go- what happens. Wow. All right. Well, Srilly, for meanim.homestead.com. Srilly, I wish you'd continued Hatzlacha. It is the Arba Minim 2013 campaign is on. If you are in need of Arba Minim, you're going to Israel for Sukkot, or you're in Israel, and you are looking to purchase from a really, really cute 13-year-old boy who's got great... Uh, Great goals in life. Surely, tell me where your stand is going to be located. In uh, Stieblach. It's a shul in uh, Katowin. Excellent. All right. So if you can't, if you can't find uh, Surly at the stand because 
frankly, you're not at Stiebach, you can definitely go to his website. Surly, continued Hatzlacha, Ishanatova to you and your family, and be in touch. Okay, thank you so much. Pleasure. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I thank you so much for joining me today. By the way, Avrami, just get back on that mic for a second. I can, What's t- that? I can tell you what I was doing at 13. It wasn't selling Avraminim. I mean, how cute is that? We used to sell candy and stuff in Yeshiva until you get caught. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of my kids would say that she uh, makes grilled cheese in school with the sandwich maker so that people can have a hot lunch at a discount. But once I found out that I was funding the bread and cheese, that came to an end. Let's go through today's lineup so you can make sure to know what not to miss and what to look forward to. We have a full afternoon of programming as usual. Right after that's life, something to talk about with Randy Wartelski. Randy interviews eight women today, all at the same time. It is not a juggling act. It is actually an interview. These women have been friends for 40 years. You should hear about what it takes to maintain these long-term relationships and how they've stayed friends for all these years. That's something to talk about coming up right at the top of the hour. Followed by Ellie Hagler and the Jewish Reaction at 5 p.m., the OU presents the Jewish, Jewish Reaction. We should, of course, make sure to note that. This week, Ellie is joined by Jack Gordy. He's the exact executive director of the Jewish Union Foundation. They discuss the upcoming Yachad job fair. You can also find information about that on our community calendar. The return of spin class with birthday boy Michael Frigg, and I'm sure he really appreciates the fact that I just gave him that shout-out. But frankly, I'm enjoying the fact that he reaches a big birthday today and that he is older than I am. That spin class today at 6 p.m., And with the mayoral uh, campaigns in full, full swing, you do not want to miss that program. Nachum hosts the uh, Thursday Night Extravaganza. That was a mouthful. The Thursday Night Extravaganza at 7 p.m., followed by an encore presentation of the stunt show, hosted by Daniel Gordon. Daniel is joined by his twin brother, Aaron. Yom Huledet Sameach to them. If you missed Daniel's interview this morning with Nachum at about 8 o'clock in the morning, 8.02, you should definitely make sure to check that out. On our archive, Book of Life with Charlie Harari follows that, followed, of course, by Charlie Burnhout at 11 p.m., wrapping up our lineup. Tune in all day long. Don't forget, Nachum on tomorrow morning, 6 to 9 a.m., Jame in the a.m., live here on the stream, nachumsegal.com and jameintheam.org, 91.1, 90.9, and 91.9 FM. Don't miss the weekly update with Malcolm Holmline. There's plus other stuff going on. Do not miss tomorrow's program. And at 9 a.m., we have a new episode of Table for Two with Naomi Nachman. She's joined by Pagit Ralbog and Chaya Frischman. They tackle new fruits and classic Rosh Hashanah Simanim. Any of you who are like me, like the Wallachs, who spend a lot of time on those new fruits and those Simanim, you don't want to miss that program. You can check out our whole program schedule on our website, nachumsegel.com. Nachumsegel.com. This show will be rebroadcast Sunday at 1 p.m., nachumsegel.com. Finally, my thanks to Avrami. For joining me today, who already uh, who already broke into those skittles? Did you not? Yes, you did. All right, and are they everything you hoped they'd be and more? Thumbs up, really? All right, better you than me. By the way, also a Mazel Tov to my nephew Shelby Rosenberg. He got a hole in one, 161 foot shot. There, it's pretty impressive, and there is a kiddish this week, evidently in his honor. Today, I leave you with Moshe Hecht's "Inspire Me." We all need a little inspiration in L, and I have to tell you, it's a little tease, because guess who's joining me on the air next week? That's life, everyone. Bye, guys. What are these white dogs doing in the city? Are they lost looking for meaning? 
so pretty in this cold, dark city. Inspire me, inspire me. In spite of all we've been through, light of all shines through me. Shine through me, you never leave me. Inspire me. I'm no longer overdue when I've got my peace of mind.